Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week, we have exclusive interviews with your favorite BC student athletes, professors, alumni, and more. We're your hosts, Ian O'Malley and Jack Bergamini. Today's exciting because we have a special guest, Matthew Gioviano. Matthew is a BC alum from the class of 2018 and the CEO and co-founder of Frenalytics, which provides data-driven solutions for cognitively impaired patients, helping them relearn aspects of their daily life through an interactive online learning tool. Matthew, can you give us a little more background about yourself and your work in general? Absolutely. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Damien, for having me. I'm Matt. I am BC class of 2018. I am originally from Long Island, New York. I now live back in Manhattan and I studied information systems and entrepreneurship as an undergrad. And I started Frenalytics many years ago when I was in middle school, actually, um, in response to my grandmother who had a really severe stroke while undergoing open heart surgery. That was the original inspiration for our product and our company as it stands today. And uh, to see it blossom from something that was, you know, kind of making lemonade out of lemons to the, the big impact that we've been able to have over the years is really inspiring and is what keeps me going. The current version of our program exists as a web app, meaning our software runs on any device, whether it be a computer, a laptop, a tablet, a smartphone, um, any device with an internet connection. And it allows family members, clinicians, teachers, and other loved ones of cognitively impaired patients and students to contribute valuable information. We call that the questionnaire module. And we turn that into interactive, engaging, fun, and most importantly, personalized learning sessions for that patient or student to go through. And then we track their analytics in terms of how they're performing on those questions and those sections to help glean insights as to areas that they can continue to show improvement in and areas that they're showing uh, signs of improvement in and, and signs of uh, positive outlook, uh, which is the most exciting part, I think, of all. Yeah, you mentioned how it started when your grandma had a stroke. After that happened, how long was the process to get this like up and running? Obviously, it didn't happen overnight. Was it was it super long, or did you have like the the whole plan almost immediately? That's a really good question. It took just a couple of weeks for me to put the PowerPoint together. That was the original version of this game because I was 12 years old at the time. I didn't know how to code. And uh, just to put things into perspective, the iPhone just came out. There was no iPad um, and touchscreen laptops were pretty novel. And so my grandmother was somebody who actually knew technology quite well. Uh, she loved LimeWire. She loved burning CDs and DVDs of everything she probably shouldn't have, but uh, she knew technology. So I wanted to tap into that and create something that I knew she would find far more interesting and far more engaging than the flashcards that the physical speech and occupational therapists were trying to bring her through in the hospital setting. That was very one way. It was not engaging. It was boring. And as a student, I was able to relate to it more than someone uh, of her age and of her diagnosis. And so uh, after I realized that I could take the same concepts that the flashcards were trying to teach in terms of familial relationships, letters and numbers, conversational skills, shapes, colors, you name it, and turn it into what became PowerPoint program. That was kind of the light bulb moment for me. And uh, within a couple of weeks, I would say that's how the first version came out. And then there were three more versions in a few short months afterwards that uh, she was able to use. That's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, I know, especially now, it feels like there's tablets everywhere <laughs> compared to maybe 10 years ago when they weren't so popular. But um, it's so crucial to help with learning, um, like at any stage for, for kids or for 
even adults who are, are trying to get back into that stage. Um, so yeah, I guess like what was the most um, challenging part of creating and starting Fredelix? Um, Oh, there are so many. Uh, so back in the day, the original challenge that I had was actually getting my family to believe in what I was making in terms of a PowerPoint program. They were kind of like, oh, that's so cool. You know, good for you. Um, and I don't think they quite saw the potential impact that it could have on somebody who was so um, cognitively impaired as my grandma was, you know, to, again, put things into perspective. After her stroke, she completely 180. She was partially paralyzed. She was tube trach invented. She was only able to nod her head yes or no to questions. She wasn't able to speak as an immediate result of her procedure. Um, so she was really significantly impaired. And over the weeks and months following her procedure, thanks not just to my program, but also to the incredible work that the, the top tier hospital staff had at the time, she was able to start answering basic questions of ours. She was able to carry out simple conversations and you know start to move the left side of her body a little bit more albeit the right side, you know, continue to be paralyzed. But to realize that a computer program could play such a meaningful role in hitting milestones that we never thought would be achievable was kind of an uphill battle <laughs> for a group that just didn't embrace technology in that way. And even when the clinicians at the time, you know, 13, 14 years ago, didn't embrace it either, it was pretty novel. Um, over the years, we had a lot of uphill battles with filing, and going through the patent process where we found, you know, somewhat related or somewhat relevant prior art, as it's called in the USPTO world, the United States uh, Trademark and Patent Office, where we had to, you know, fight for ourselves to show how the methodologies and the product that we came up with truly is unique and meritorious to warrant a, a patent being filed. More recently, I think um, we've experienced quite a number of struggles with building out the product and coming up with a team and kind of bringing the product to market as do all startups. So it's really fun and challenging. Um, certainly not a negative thing, really fun and challenging to go through all of that as a first time founder. Um, but certainly a struggle uh, is one way I would put it and uh, leaning on other people who have kind of been down the same path that I have is a, a great way of figuring out how to not make the same mistakes again, so to speak. At what point did like your family and other doctors and physici physicians like buy into this idea? Because obviously you said they were skeptical at first, just like a middle schooler coming up with this idea. But like at one point, were they like, oh, this is actually like a better option? I think by the third or fourth version of the program where in PowerPoint, where it became advanced enough that if you speak to my parents about it, they'll still remember the animations that it had to this day. And, you know, it seems silly and, and rudimentary of, you know, 2022 standards, but there would be like a shipping package that would drop onto the screen. And once my grandmother would be prompted to correctly fill out her home address, then it would seem like a package arrived at her front door or a phone would ring and she would be prompted to go pick it up. And then there would be a recording of someone who sounded like her sister and she'd be asked to select the correct response to whatever the prompt was. Um, that was a, a text-to-speech. So again, 13, 14 years ago, that was really novel by present-day standards. It's just like you kind of eye roll at it. But when they realized that it was going to that level of hyper-personalization and the response that my grandmother had for it, especially given her stubbornness to the previous levels of cognitive rehabilitation, I think that's when they realized there's something here. And as soon as outside parties started taking notice of the broader use cases that this you know unique approach to cognitive therapy could have especially for my business partner a family friend at the time we realized that 
we could be onto something. That's really great. Yeah. And um, I know, I mean, you started this um, even while at BC, which is really cool. Um, how was that kind of journey like managing schoolwork and your all, all your extracurriculars uh, while also kind of building this idea for Frontalytics as well? It was challenging to say the least. I mean, over the years, I found myself as a middle school student, high school student, college student, even now juggling, you know, many things at once and working many jobs, wearing many hats, so to speak. Uh, but especially during my time at Boston College, it was challenging. I was a full-time student. I held three TA jobs over the course of my senior year. I worked at the uh, walk-in help desk in O'Neill, which was one of my favorite things, and I met a ton of friends there. And of course, I was trying to scale this company while I was an undergrad. So doing them all simultaneously, not for the faint of heart, certainly, um, but the support of the the staff and my friends at Boston College, I think, was one of the ways that I was able to get through it all, especially as um, resources like the Shea Center for Entrepreneurship started to really take hold while I was a student. You know, that, that program started my sophomore year, and I was one of the first students in their entrepreneurship co-concentration. To see where it is now is unbelievable in terms of its growth over six or seven years since it initially started. That was one of the ways that I was able to kind of cope with that challenge of doing all of them at the same time. How would you say like Shay or any other specific moment at BC helped like shape this idea or really push it forward to like what it is now? One of the specific ways that Shay helped was the set of classes that the entrepreneurship co-concentration hosts. There have been changes over the years, of course, now that Tech Trek is under the Shea Center, um, but entrepreneurial management as a class was kind of a crash course into running a business and Professor Mary Tripsis at the time taught it for my section and I thought that was extremely beneficial because it exposed me to the world of fundraising, venture capital, how to put slide decks together, how to identify a problem and come up with a solution, how to find teammates or in this case colleagues or coworkers, how to work through you know hard problems and be able to um, you know be able to uh, more clearly explain them to whatever your recipient or your stakeholder base might be, whether it's end users, investors, other colleagues of yours, um, outside parties, et cetera. There were a number of other classes that I took that I think were extremely helpful. Um, Professor Weiner's um, uh, class for the upper level CSUM concentration, uh, extremely helpful. Professor Gallagher's Tech Trek class, I cannot say enough incredible things about that. Of course, now it's under the Shea Center management, and I think that um, it'll grow even more there. So um, hats off to Shea for allowing that to grow, even in the wake of Tech Trek. And then, of course, there were things that I participated in, like the Shea Venture Competition. It's since been renamed, um, but I participated in that uh, my junior year, and our company made it to become a finalist, which was a really rewarding experience as well. So uh, those were a couple of things that I took advantage of as a student. I wish I took advantage of more, but uh, those were the ones that I was able to get my hands on. And as a, an alum now looking in, trying to help students, uh, undergrads, even you guys realize that like there are so many things at your disposal that you can use during your four years, you know, take advantage of them. They're, they're there for you specifically. Yeah, I, I'm definitely learning a lot personally from, from all you said. Thank you for that. Um, but it must have been really cool. I mean, I know Tech Track, it goes to like Silicon Valley. That's a really great experience. Um, 
and then start at Sheet, you were actually recently invited back um, for the entrepreneur, uh, an entrepreneurship week, uh, like as a guest to speak. Um, was, was there any kind of shift in advice that you give, uh, that you gave your attendees um, that may be different from your college experience on, on how to create a business and uh, like bringing your idea to life? Absolutely. I love being invited back to talk to BC students. I was most recently on campus in November. I came again at the end of September. I believe I'll be back in about a month or so when uh, Tech and Entrepreneurship Week is kicking off in hybrid mode. So really excited for that. Um, one piece of advice that I would give to students who are kind of on the verge of exploring their own startup is to start early, kind of like I did, where if there's something that you want to consider pursuing, see if you can do it while you're a college student. That's kind of the safest way to do it. You're still a full-time student. You have so many resources available to you while you're on campus. And you know the downside is limited compared to what your exposure will be in the real world of you know losing out on a full-time job or spending a considerable amount of your own capital in order to bring something to life and you know potentially lose it all. I think if you have such an idea and you want to rally the troops, so to speak, and find other students who are just as passionate about you of something and, and try it out, see where it goes, especially while you're on a campus that values entrepreneurship as much as Boston College does, go for it. And then when you're still kind of on the verge, see if you have the capability, whether it's in your DNA or personality or whatever you want to label it, to try and consider a job on top of your startup, as I did for a very long time. Um, it is again, not for the faint of heart, but it allowed me to really believe in myself and say, okay, I'm at this point of understanding that I can take this on full-time, but I didn't always feel that way. And having another full-time opportunity allowed me to validate that at myself instead of always wondering, ooh, did I make the wrong decision? So that's my personal um, recommendation. Most other founders may feel differently, just like take the plunge. I certainly value that as well if you have that conviction. For those who are unsure or want to explore the startup world though and aren't really sure where to start, that would be my recommendation. Start early. College is a really great way to do that. What would you say is like the most important thing when creating a startup? Because I feel like a lot of students always have these ideas, but they never know like how to actually start. So like just starting out, I feel like it's probably the hardest part. How do you suggest students to even do that? Start somewhere. Like, Take something and run with it and actually begin to execute. Because if you are in the pursuit of something that's perfect and you wait until you reach that point, you will never get there. And that sounds so cynical, but I've seen it myself. I've almost fallen to that trap many times. And I've seen friends of mine who have wanted to start companies, but they're trying to reach this ultimate point where they think they'll be ready to kind of show the greater world their idea. And they just don't reach it because that point keeps moving farther and farther out. Um, there's a quote, I don't remember who specifically it's by, but um, if it goes something along the lines of, if you ship the first version of your product and you're not embarrassed by it, you're too late. And uh, I think that holds very true in the software world where, oh my God, if I look back, you know, three, three and a half years ago as to the initial version of our program, when I was on site for a client visit in California and our login page just fell apart, I was beyond embarrassed. And then I realized, hey, this is starting somewhere. I mean, I'm on site for a client visit that somehow said yes to us and did not know what they were getting themselves into. Um, but it allowed us to start somewhere, build a rapid timeline from there and continue to execute, continue to iterate. So um, that would be my one piece of advice there, like pick a, a piece that will allow you to easily get to and then run with it 
it'll also help you bring more people on board who are supportive of your mission and share passion for it just as much as you do, if not even more. That's really great. Yeah, I know it's it's sometimes so hard to kind of build from nothing when you feel like, you know, there's so many different directions you can take it, but building off of those is, is really cool. So um, yeah, um, I guess it also, uh, I saw that you served uh, in Pulse, um, which is a community service-based class at BC. Um, at St. Stephen's, which is um, like an elementary school for children from underprivileged areas. Um, did that um, experience kind of shape your, your vision for Analytics at all or, or change it in any way? In a way it did. I was actually speaking with BC friends of mine last week about my time at St. Stephen's and at Pulse and how much I enjoyed it. Um, the students that I worked with at St. Stephen's came from underprivileged backgrounds. And so I had the unique exposure to understanding how students in the South Boston district where St. Stephen's operates lives after school hours. And while it seems on the surface, they go to Boston public schools and they have the latest iPhone and all that stuff there, you know, are more, um, there are more serious, uh, you know, socioeconomic issues that these students face that um, won't unfortunately be solved just by student volunteers, such as the ones through BC and Pulse, but it's certainly a start. And it was not just eye-opening for me, but I think they also taught me a lot as much as I hope I taught them. Um, you know, over the years, we have moved a lot into the world of special education and working with the younger population at Frenalytics. And I think for a lot of the students that I worked with back at the time, there are some learning disabilities, some of which that may have gone undiagnosed, especially because of the lower performing schools that these students were a part of, that could have potentially used our software. And it's funny because back in the day we were working and thinking and researching just on the elderly population of those with stroke, dementia, traumatic brain injury. But now thinking about that K through 12, and especially with St. Stephen's K through five demographic and realizing that it doesn't require a diagnosis in order to realize that every student learns differently, there could have been a real impact that um, our software could have had on that population. And that's where our, our minds are heading to now to figure out where we can best serve the needs of those students, especially the ones that either get overlooked or are, are undiagnosed for a variety of reasons. Yeah, definitely. Because um, I know like a lot of students, and this is like a big issue in all schools, like in America, like there's a lot of students who go undiagnosed, but then just really struggle in school and fall behind in teachers. They can't spend the time to, you know, support them and then they just become lost. So how do you think your product like fits into that, into the classroom? Because so many classrooms these days use technology and actually have technology available. So I think this is like a really viable option, but just, I guess, how has that shift been to like classrooms been for you? That's a great question. The, the sad part of the pandemic, among the many sad parts of the pandemic, is that there's a term dubbed learning loss that the special education community is especially facing because they were disproportionately affected by COVID and remote learning because of the way that these students typically are faced with intellectual and learning disabilities and the one-on-one -on -one specialized attention that they need that they can no longer get in the wake of the pandemic and then being sent home just like the rest of us. Um, but these students didn't just stay stagnant like the neurotypical population did, especially through K-12. They actually receded and declined. And so it's fascinating to see the studies coming out of it of how to bring these students kind of back up to where they were. Um, the silver lining in all of this is that this student population wasn't given much um, 
of a chance to learn technology pre-pandemic. And everybody, in my opinion, was kind of forced to do that. <laughs> it was kind of sink or swim. And so the students who, you know, perhaps their teachers or their school or their parents didn't have much faith in their ability to operate a laptop or open a Chromebook or charge it or, you know, work on a keyboard, whatever it might be. Suddenly all these students learned it over the past two years and they're better off for it. I think that the bar got raised on their ability to work with technology. And as a result, new ed tech software like ours and like the many others that have cropped up over the past two to three years, even pre-pandemic, are now suddenly within reach because these students, even ones with diagnosed special needs, are able to operate them largely on their own, which is huge because regardless of a student's disability, now that everybody has a Chromebook or an iPad or a laptop at home, thanks to COVID, we can start administering software like ours where learning becomes more personalized, it's in the hands of a student, and they can take charge of their education a lot more than they were able to in the classroom only setting with paper worksheets, because just like flashcards, I think they're quite antiquated and boring in one way. And uh, especially in the early days of COVID where it was a little bit of a free for all, so to speak, of uh, not much learning happening, unfortunately, and a lot of learning of technology happening because that just wasn't a priority prior. Um, but one of the things that we saw that was a great silver lining in all of this was one of our classrooms out in California that was using Frenalytics as a bit of a trial in our early days of our EDU product. And their students, while Frenalytics is assigned as homework for them nightly, these students would log in multiple times a day. They'd log in on weekends, they'd log in on holidays even, and they'd be running our software. And I would ask their teacher, why are you giving homework on a holiday? And she would say, I'm not, why are they doing it? Um, so we would dig in a little bit and we find out what's going on. And we realized that these students really enjoyed what they were learning through our software. And because it was personalized and it was all about them, that just increased the motivation to run through our sessions and to learn more about math and counting and language arts and reading and whatever the topics might be that they were working on. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I like how you mentioned the, the personalized touch so much, which is kind of, I mean, unique to Frontalytics. I mean, obviously you have it in so many other software and stuff like that, but um, like looking at the Frontalytics site, like you could really customize your own questions to like um, identify like things within the family and, and, and make family groups and, and things like that, which is really cool. Um, would you say that kind of unique um, features, like what you kind of emphasize to kind of um, attract that interest and make learning more fun, I guess, outside the classroom? Exactly. That's the big differentiator that we have compared to some of the other products that exist in the market right now. We have a small handful of indirect competitors, but there's nothing that comes even close to the hyper-personalization that we focus on. We couple that with our emphasis on life skills, meaning how to count coins, how to read a story, how to do certain things that will allow students to really embrace their independent nature post-school or how to help the elderly population become more independent again or return to baseline as much as possible. Um, so that's been our large focus there. And while these markets seem you know, pretty stark and different from one another, they're actually quite adjacent in that regard because the content that we uh, publish for the elderly population and for the K-12 students is the same and they interact with our software the same way to get very similar outcomes. So yes, um, our focus on personalization is kind of our bread and butter and then we couple it with things like life skills to make it really practical instead of 
um, purely academic based, which I think that there's software out there that does a great job at doing that. And, you know, we wouldn't want to get in the way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely super important because, you know, life, life skills are just as important as academic skills. And sometimes you don't see in the classroom, like those life skills, like counting coins and stuff like that, like really implemented. So I think, I think that's definitely super important. But I mean, kind of wrapping up here, Matt, would you say, what would you say if you had to pick one thing as like your end goal for front analytics? Like what, what would you say that would be if you, if, if you could accomplish anything? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I would say that our end goal is to have Frontalytics available to the 93 million students worldwide who fall under the cognitive disability diagnosis where they could really benefit from a tool like ours. And the 67 million patients who have a stroke, TBI, and dementia that require cognitive rehabilitation that are not getting it in the way that they need to right now. That is a huge market represents 160 million patients and students so far. And overall, while it's a much broader market, people with disabilities are the world's largest minority. And that's really unsettling for me, but it's also inspiring because it makes us realize that this solution, while it's not one size fits all, of course, it is something that can apply to such a broad base of people to help them get better. And get better can be um, interpreted many different ways, whether it's that return to baseline, as I was mentioning, or it's to help that student get a job after graduation from high school, or to perhaps help them uh, go on a college bound track because now they're more focused and they're able to um, take the skills that they've learned in the high school setting and apply it towards an advanced degree. So I think there's a lot of potential there and to be able to expand our program to reach the, its entire intended audience would be my broader goal there. And then of course, to grow the product to a point where we can truly assess a patient or a student's level of cognitive decline to really automate this process and not need the very expensive in-person medical diagnosis in order to help somebody understand what kind of care that they need from a cognitive basis um, is within our you know larger three, five-year roadmap as well. So I would say those two things um, coupled together would really help us achieve our broader mission. Yeah, that is, that's definitely an awesome goal. And we both hope you know you achieve that. Um, but overall, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we definitely learned a lot about Frontalytics. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, thank, thank you everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week back on Eagle Eye.